So we're in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 this morning, and ever since the Tower of Babel, the story that's in Genesis 11, ever since then there's been division in the human race. I mean, you could go further back than that. You could say Cain and Abel was a sign of that. But think about the Tower of Babel. That's that first time you see this idea of different people groups who just can't get along. Last night, some of you are aware, there was a hostage situation in a synagogue in Colleyville, which is just outside uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Fortunately, it ended with all the, all the uh, hostages going free. No, none of them were injured. I don't know anything else about the situation. I just know that when I heard that, I thought, good grief, this is still going on. We live in a world where the slightest difference between people can lead to bloodshed. If you're a different race, if you're a different political ideology, if you're a different language group, if, you're, if you listen to different music on the radio, I mean, goodness, we can fight over the most ridiculous things. There's division in the human race, and the, the solution depends on who you talk to, what voice you listen to, because there's all kinds of voices trying to tell us what the problem is, and what the solution is. Now, if you listen to the loudest voices on the left, they will tell you that the problem is an imbalance of power. They'll tell you that this nation was founded with one fatal flaw, that the the founding fathers made the mistake of allowing slavery from the very beginning, and therefore, there's a group of people that ever since then have always had more power and privilege than everyone else, and the only solution is to take away that power and privilege and distribute it evenly. And if they won't give it up voluntarily, then they must be made to give it up. Now, the loudest voices on the right will say, well, the problem is actually wokeism. It's, it's social justice warriors going around and stirring up trouble. Everything would be okay, but they stir up the trouble. They get us all hot and bothered and angry with one another. So the solution is to isolate those people, to, to ignore them, to paint them as un-American so that we can just go about our business and everything will be okay. And some of you right now are like, oh, we're gonna talk about politics today. Okay, I will listen but we're actually in a series called Why Church? And we're looking at why the church exists. We're in a time when the church to a lot of people seems irrelevant at best. A lot of unbelievers, whereas 50 years ago, if you, if you talk to the average non-Christian, they would have said, well, you know, I don't believe, but I'm glad the church exists. It does a lot of good for society. Whereas today, I think if you talk to your average non-Christian, they would say, well, you know, we'd be better off without organized religion, period. It's, it causes more problems than it does any good. And even Christians see church as optional at most. You especially talk to Christians my age and younger, and if you meet one and they go to church maybe once a week, I'm sorry, once a month, maybe once every six weeks, they'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm a good Christian. I'm really involved. And that's just coming and sitting through a sermon once a month. That's not contributing, serving, giving. That's just, oh, I do my time. I, 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 give, I, I, I sit through a sermon once a month. But what does God have to say? What does the church mean to him? And what does it mean in his eyes to be part of the church, to be involved in the church? Last week we saw that to Jesus, the church is his bride. He laid down his life for her. He is a husband who died for the sake of his wife. And he is in the process of cleansing and refining and and remaking her and reshaping her into the perfect image of the perfect bride so that on his wedding day, the, the wedding feast of the lamb, when Christ returns, we will be perfect in his sight and we will reign alongside him forevermore. And Jesus demands that if we love him, we love her, that we be as loyal to him, as, as loyal to her and as committed to her as he is to her and to us. 
And this week we're gonna talk about what the church has to say and do with the division in humanity that the church is actually God's plan for peace on earth. Now you won't hear that from voices on the right or the left. To the left, the church is the problem, not the solution. That we were the ones who carry that privilege and, and perpetuate that, that evil system. And to the voices on the right, the church needs to stay out of all of this. In fact, anytime you hear a pastor or a Christian leader who tries to address issues of race and division, uh, the voices from the right say, okay, now you're becoming one of those woke people because you're talking about things that we don't want you to talk about. And forgetting, of course, that these things are addressed in scripture. And that's my point. You're fine listening to all manner of voices. I, I, I think it's good for us to know what people believe. But you, I hope you understand, there's only one voice that is always right. There's only one voice that you take to heart and say, I will follow that voice until I die, and that is the voice of God. And, and, and notice I didn't say my voice or the voice of any other preacher. The voice of God is the only one you listen to without question. Now, how do you know you're hearing the voice of God? Well, fortunately, he's given us his word. The Bible is the standard we can use when we hear someone offering an opinion or telling us this is what is true and this is what we should believe. We can test it against his word, and if it doesn't match up with what his word says, we can say, okay, that's just a human opinion. I don't have to believe in that. I don't have to agree with that, but God's word is truth. So let's look at what the Bible actually says about the plan for peace on earth among human beings. Actually, Paul, the author of Ephesians, is a perfect guy to write this because he grew up, we would call him a, a flaming racist. I mean, Paul was a proud Jewish man who hated Gentiles and he had reasons to. You know, that, that hostage crisis last night, that kind of thing has been going on to the Jewish people forever. And part of the reason why is in every culture in that time in the ancient world, the Jews were seen as oddballs. They were the only people group who refused to fit in. Any other people group, if you got taken captive and carried away to a foreign land or if you just voluntarily immigrated, the first thing you do is figure out, okay, what do I need to do to fit in? I'll start eating this food and I'll start speaking this language and dressing this way and okay, those are your gods? Okay, I'll worship those gods. I'll still worship mine. But, and, and everything worked out. That, that made for peace. But the Jews refused. They would come in and say, I'm not eating that food, that's unclean. I'm not dressing that way, that's, no, no. And, and your gods, your gods are not gods at all. They're, they're wood and stone, there's only one God and it's Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so as a result, anytime there was any kind of disaster in any of these nations where the Jews lived, and so there'd be a flood or a fire or an earthquake or a, or a defeat in battle or a plague, and the people would immediately say, well, it's their fault, it's the Jews' fault because they're the ones who aren't worshiping our gods and the gods are angry at us, and so that's why these bad things are happening. And so if you were the governor or the king and you wanted to up your approval ratings, what would you do? You would persecute the Jews because then everybody would say, okay, good, good, you're, you're dealing with the situation. And as a result, the Jews, of course, they hated Gentiles and Paul among them. I'm sure Paul, like most Jewish people his, of his era, believed that the only reason God kept making more Gentiles was because the fires of hell needed fuel. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus had a different plan. Not only did Jesus change Paul and save his soul and redeem him and turn him a complete 180, but he said, you're gonna be my man to take the gospel to the Gentiles. You tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor? 
So here's Paul, and to his credit, once he knew the plan of God, he was all in. He was a completely different person. He loved Gentiles. He wanted to see Jew and Gentile worshiping together. He wanted to see all the people of earth in one family, and he began to preach that way and work for that plan. Look at Ephesians 3.6. See, Paul's writing to the Ephesians. They are a church that he planted, a multi-ethnic church, and he loved it. He wanted to affirm them. In chapter three, verse six, he says, this mystery, let me just stop there. Mystery, whenever you see that word in the Bible, substitute the word secret plan. Because that's the way we would say it today. You know how in World War II, I'm gonna talk to you like you're all history nerds like me. In World War II, the Allies had Operation Overlord. They had the secret plan to invade Europe and nobody knew except the inner circle. And then one day, June 6th, 1944, everybody saw it happen. This is the secret plan of God for peace. Paul says the mystery of God, the secret plan, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And then look what he says in verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, through the church, not through angels, not through governments, not through armies, through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What's he talking about? Rulers and authorities always means angelic figures, unseen powers. He's saying the angels, even the angels didn't predict what was gonna happen. When Jesus came and died for humanity, he didn't just die to save individual humans from, from hell, he died to make us one. And he died to make us one through the church. And even the angels saw that and said, wow, I didn't see that coming. I didn't think those people would ever get together. So look at verse 11 of chapter two of Ephesians. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. By the way, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your mother. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Remember that phrase, the dividing wall of hostility. We're gonna come back to that, but let me, let me just stop and say, this is, again, Paul is saying, you Gentiles were outside, you had no hope. And this sounds like the old Paul. You were uncircumcised, you, you, you had no access to the, to the law, you didn't know our God, you had no hope in the world, but Christ has brought you in. And as a 100% Gentile, I got the DNA test to prove it, I got no Jewish blood in me, hallelujah that God found a way to bring me into the family even though I don't qualify in any way. But that's not all. He didn't just die so that I could be brought in and you could be brought in, he died so that we could be one, so that there would no longer be Jew and Gentile, black, white, brown, yellow, that we would be one in Christ. In verse 15, he says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. God is making one new race. It's not like our old racial distinctions won't exist or matter. We'll still celebrate those, 
but we're becoming a new race, the people of God, and that will be our primary identity in Christ. Verse 16, and my reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. We'll talk about that in a moment too. Thereby killing the hostility, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So I started today by talking about the Tower of Babel. I made reference to that story from the Old Testament. If you don't know that story or if it's been a long time since you learned it in Sunday school as a kid. So back then, humanity was fairly new. And there was a group of people who said, let's build a tower. And this wasn't just for business or commerce. This tower had a very specific purpose. They said, we wanted to ascend into the heavens. In other words, we want access to heaven without God. We wanted to ascend into the heavens and we want, to, we want to make sure that we're not scattered over all the earth. So we want security. We want the security of being bonded together, humanity's power, and we want to make a name for ourselves. In other words, we want to feel that sense of significance and, and, and success that says we've done it. The Tower of Babel was intended to be a monument to human ingenuity, a, a way of saying humanity doesn't need God. And God knew that if the longer he let that project continue, the, the worse it would be for the human race because when we're cut off from access to God, we lose our lifeblood, we die, we shrivel and die. And so God came down and sabotaged that building project and it was never completed. And so if you read the story, you see a tower, a building project that was meant to bring humanity together instead resulted in humanity being more divided than it ever was before. And then there was a second building project and, and thousands of years later, along comes King Solomon and he builds a temple to the Lord in Jerusalem. This, this building project was different because it was actually sanctioned by God. God said, if you build this temple, I will dwell there. It'll be the place, the bridge between heaven and earth where people all over the world, no matter who they are, they can come and they can meet me there. They can have their sins atoned for and they can get right with me. But unfortunately, human beings messed that one up too. By the time Paul's alive, there, there's a series of walls in the temple complex. Remember that, that phrase I told you to pay attention to, the dividing wall of hostility? There was a, one wall before you ever got to the sanctuary of the temple that, that said you couldn't pass through that gate if you were a Gentile, if you were a non-Jew. And so it, it literally said, I'm, I'm gonna read you the words of the sign. No foreigner may enter within the barricade that surrounds this sanctuary. Anyone who does so will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death. Yeah, we don't have that sign on the outside of our church, I'm glad to say. Paul says, Jesus came to make that irrelevant to break down the dividing wall of hostility. Any division that separates human from human on any basis is irrelevant in Christ Jesus. Now, here's where the church comes in. God is building his own tower, his own temple. And it's not made of stone, it's not made of brick, it's not made of clay or adobe or, or stucco or whatever you wanna build. He's, it's built of human beings. 
It is a tower, it is a temple made up of human beings of every nation, race, tribe, and tongue so that all the world will see what God is doing and they'll say, how can you do this? How can you make this work? I mean, here's Jesus, the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation and we're the bricks. And the world looks and says, how can you bring black, white, and brown, yellow, and Jew, and Gentile, and people from all kinds of cultures, and, and rock guys, and, and rap guys, and country music guys, and every kind of guy, and bring them in, and make them one? We can't do that. I mean, we can legislate it, but they still segregate themselves anyway. And, and we, can, we can make them think their divisions don't matter. We can tell them, ah, oh, just, just pretend to be colorblind. Doesn't work. How are you accomplishing that? And then we can say it's the gospel. The church's job, one of the church's jobs is to be the sign that only the gospel can erase the divisions between human beings and bring peace on earth. See, the reason Paul was in prison was because of that dividing wall. He brought Gentiles with him to Jerusalem and then went to the temple and the, the people there said, aha, he must be bringing those Gentiles with him past the dividing wall and they pounced on him and they beat him and the Romans showed up and they grabbed Paul and they dragged him out of the mob and they said, well, anybody who's being beaten by the mob must, be, must have done something wrong and they throw him in jail and he's writing this letter from jail and saying, it won't always be this way because the church is the tower the temple that is gonna show the world that peace comes through the gospel. And you might say, okay, that's very touching and beautiful, but is it really working? Let me give you some statistics. Christianity is the most diverse belief system in the history of the world. You think about any other belief system, whether it's <laughs> capitalism, communism, democracy, dictatorship, fascism, communism, all of them are localized, right? The gospel has spread throughout every continent, every nation. Do you know today, the fastest growing place for Christianity is one of the most closed nations of the world, communist China, where the government is actively trying to stop the growth of the church and yet it is growing so fast that by the end of this decade, if trends don't change, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States. China will actually be the most Christian nation on earth by the end of this decade if trends continue. Not only that, my kids, and if I ever have any grandkids, my grandkids will live in a world by the year 2060 in which 40% of the Christians on earth live in the continent of Africa. And for hundreds of years, we sent missionaries from all over the world to Africa to bring them the gospel. And my great-grandkids will grow up in a world where the Africans will be sending missionaries to us because that's the power of the gospel. And you say, well, what about America? Well, where do you think all men are created equal came from? Right there in the, at the opening words of the Declaration of Independence. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a genius. I'll grant you that, but he didn't come up with that. That comes from the scriptures. That comes from among other places, Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. How do you think slavery was abolished? Who was it who actually stood up and said, not only do I not believe in slavery, we have to actively fight against it. It was Christian men and women, mostly in the North. How do you think civil rights happen 100 years later in this country? Tomorrow we'll celebrate it as a nation, MLK Day. Those were Christian men and women who were marching. Those were Christian men and women who were sitting in at Woolworths and on the, on the buses going through the South. Those were Christian men and women who said, we have to do something. We have to do something 
to, to break this injustice. The ultimate fulfillment of all of this is Revelation 7, 9, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Someday we will stand in that congregation, those of us who are in Christ, and we will praise the King who sits on the throne and we will praise him in one voice, but we'll still speak different languages, but we'll still be different colors. Heck, I think I'll still have a Texas accent. Yeehaw, right? It's gonna be wonderful because in spite of our differences, we'll be one. And in the meantime, the job of every individual church is to be a branch of that larger temple to, to show our community love happens here, not division, not hate, not segregation, but love. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're looking around the room and you're saying, okay, that's, that's great, Jeff, but when I look around the room, I see mostly people who look like me. Yeah, and that's true of most local churches. And that just shows we're not there yet. Don't get me wrong, I love every member of this church. I, I mean, I, there's not a single one I want to give up or trade for anything. I just, I just know that in God's plan, as we grow, we're gonna see more diversity. We're gonna see people who don't look like me and don't look like most of you. I've been part of a church that, where that happened one time. And I can tell you there's no magic bullet. There's no one thing you can do. You can't just take a vote in business meeting. You can't just throw open your doors and, and put an ad in the paper and say, we welcome all people. I, I can tell you this, every, every time I've seen someone visit this church who was of a different race, I've seen people be warm and welcoming and kind to them, and that's the way it should be. But what I learned from my previous church is it takes more than that. It takes two things. It takes something on the part of that other person and something on the part of us. On that other person's part, it takes a lot of courage and social confidence to come in and say, you know, there's not many people that look like me here, but I'm gonna make this my spiritual home. But on our part, it takes being more than friendly. Because I've said this before, People aren't looking for friendly people, they're looking for friends. And it takes us going out of our way and saying, I'm gonna bring you into my group. I'm gonna take you out to lunch, I'm gonna get to know you. You know, when we think about the 10,000 transforming relationships we wanna be a part of by 2030, what this means is, this is you and me deciding, I'm gonna break down some walls. I'm gonna establish a relationship with, with at least a couple of people who don't look like me. Even though it is the natural tendency of human beings to say, I like to congregate with folks who I have some things in common with. See, that's, that's your point of application. If you're a note taker, I've got one note for you, okay? What can we do? What is, what is our part in God's construction project? We have to do whatever it takes to reach out to those who are different. And it is hard. It's easier not to. It's easier just to do what most of us do, which is be nice and go on with our business. But it takes going out of your way and saying, if I reach out to this person, if I establish a friendship with this person who doesn't look like me, not only do I have an opportunity, if they're not a believer, to lead them to Christ, that's great, hallelujah. If they are a believer, to establish fellowship across the body of believers, and that's a beautiful thing. But if I reach out to someone who doesn't look like me and establish an actual friendship, that's one more brick in that wall where the community looks and says, well, what do you two have in common? And all you can say is, Jesus, 
I don't listen to his music. I don't eat his food. We don't, there's nothing we have in common. We didn't grow up the same way, but we got Jesus. And so we're brothers. And so that transcends all this other stuff. That new Jerusalem we talked about where every, every uh, race and tribe and tongue will worship together in harmony, that's our home. I love living in Conroe, but this is not my home. That's my home. And we're ambassadors here from there. Our job is to bring some of that down here with us so that the world will see and go, I want some of that too. Yeah, I, I wanna live where you live. That's our job, to be the body of Christ, to be the temple of the Lord and show the world his plan. And let me just close with this. It only works through the gospel. It only works through the gospel. It's not our good intentions. It's not us being extra, extra kind. It only works because of the gospel. Again, verse 15, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It only works because Jesus died for us. Some of you know this story, but Don Richardson and his family many, many years ago went to a place called Dutch New Guinea at that time. I was told since then that it's called Suriname today, off the coast of South America. He and his family went there specifically to reach a, a people group called the Sawis, S-A-W-I. Uh, they were a, literally a Stone Age tribe and they were very warlike and violent. They constantly had battles with their rival tribes. The Richardsons showed up there, didn't know the language, didn't know anything. All they knew to do was they had some medical training and so they rendered aid when someone was injured. Uh, they, they had some medicines they were able to take care of some of the illnesses that those people suffered from. And finally, over time, they were able to learn the language and become fluent enough that they were able to sit down and share with them the gospel story. So this great day arrives where they're gonna sit down with all the leaders and say, this is the truth, this is who God is. This is the good news. And at the end of the story, they were horrified to find out that the Sawis heard the story and thought, oh, well, Judas is the good guy. Judas is the hero because he won. He, he betrayed his rival and he came out on top. And, and that's what it takes. That was, that's what they valued was power and strength and winning. And so the Richardson said, we've failed. We've been here years, we've invested all this and we've absolutely failed. We just need to pack our bags and go home. But the Sawis, when they found they were leaving, they said, no, 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 you can't leave. You've made our lives better in so many ways. Please stay. And they said, well, we can't. You're not listening to us. And they said, well, listen, if we make peace with our rivals, will you stay? And they said, well, okay, let's try that. And the Sawis said, okay, tomorrow we'll make peace. And the next day they watched as the chief of the tribe went up to the top of a hill where the, where the rival tribe was standing and he brought his little son and he handed that son over to the chief of the other tribe. And then they came back and they said, that's how we make peace. I have to give up my son to him. That's called the peace child. Because he's now a member of their tribe, I would never think to attack them because my son now lives with them. And the Richardsons, you know, you see this little light bulb go on. And they sat the leaders down and said, okay, now we understand why God brought us here. Jesus is the original peace child. God, the Father, wanted to make peace with us, but we didn't make peace with him. We couldn't, we, we had no desire to make peace with him, so he sent his son, his one and only son, the ultimate peace child, not, not for us to adopt, but for us to kill. And in us killing him, we killed our own sin, everything that separated us from 
the Father. And we were brought into a relationship of peace with him. And not only peace with him, but peace with one another. There is one answer, one answer to the division among humanity, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Christ died for us, peace is not only possible, peace will happen. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to start seeing it happen in this church and in this community. We can be a part of it. That's our calling.